to Connell Tribune, Thursday, 24th October 2019. Ireland's calling, but there's nobody home. Ireland were lining up to face the mate of the World Champions New Zealand in the World Cup quarter final in Tokyo. Two greats of the rugby world with teams full of sporting giants in the physical sense as well as on the playing field. The All Blacks performed the Haka, one of the great iconic images in sport. The team once captained by Dave Gallagher from Remelton, who have emerged as the greatest of all time. Then the cameras turned to the Irish team limbering up for the battle ahead. It should have been North men, South men, comrades all. But what do we get? Shoulder to shoulder, arms entwined as the band prepares for the anthem. Hearts of steel, heads are bound, bound never to be broken. We will fight until we fight no more, till our failing requiem is spoken. For fuck's sake, what's all that about? Despite the actual physical demolition of our team by the All Blacks, the reality dawned that beating them in a friendly in Dublin means nothing when it comes to the real thing. But the song is dire. Probably Phil Coulter's worst contribution to the musical world in a stellar career. Ireland's call has become identified with the Irish rugby team as the anthem of our country. We're the only country in the world who don't play or sing our national anthem when the team represent us. It really is a disgrace. Despite the song being a pathetic disco version, to replace Aaron Levine with this dirge is the strangest decision ever. And for the players going out to battle, what's their perception of the song? Does it inspire them to fight until we fight no more? Just watch the Welsh, Argentines, Springboks and others bellowing out their anthems of pride, some with tears in their eyes, their hearts thumping inside the jerseys. I'm not saying the Irish guys don't feel that. Remember Johnny Hayes against England at Croke Park? We understand, of course, the reason why Ron Levine was replaced by Coulter's ditty. There's a small percentage of players from the north who have a problem with standing for it and also singing it. But the RFU is a 32-county organisation representing the whole country and the national anthem represents all 32 counties. Rugby is a minority sport in Ireland, well behind the GA and soccer. The numbers per play and language in comparison to the GA and soccer clubs were in the hundreds of thousands. But that's not a problem. The participation in any sports to be welcomed for our kids. It's much preferable in the kids playing play some sport rather than stuck on a PlayStation. Funny enough, in the 60s, as a kid, there wasn't much sport on TV, and I used to watch the rugby, uh, Wimbledon, and God Preserve as the cricket. Those were the only live sport, and the FA Cup final, the only soccer match in a whole year. The history of rugby, of course, is quite different from other sports. The GEA grew out of the Nationals' revival at the end of the 19th century, and soccer has always been the game of the working class around the world. But rugby has an altogether different history from the other sports. All the major organised sports which stem from their roots at the end of the 19th century, bar the GEA, can trace their introduction to the presence of the British Army in Ireland and everywhere else they occupied. When I lived in Malta, I played golf at Royal Malta and found out the guy who formed the club in 1890 was a British soldier who also helped found the first golf club in Cork when stationed there. All sports in Ireland can trace back to the end, soccer, hockey, cricket, athletics, golf and rugby. And even some GEA players, the industrial slaughter fest of World War I 
brought death to many Irish sportsmen who had signed up to take part in the war for king and country. Although, as the song goes, fighting for the wrong cause and country was their fate. Rugby had more than the share of recruits for the British Army. There have been family connections to the army through the 19th century and the sons of a new generation were slaughtered at the Somme and Verdun. Trinity College would have provided many recruits. There was a pride in their efforts to support the Crown with their own unit within the college who actually fought against the men of Easter Week. They too would eventually find themselves on the wrong side of history. There were hundreds of sportsmen who gave their lives during World War I. I'll mention just a few here from the archives. An early start at the start of the 20th century was Basil McClear, although born in England, his dad, an army major, was stationed here, and the young Basil made an impression on the sporting field. In 1905, he played for Ireland against Dave Geller in the All Blacks on tour. Both would be killed on the Western Front, McClear at Ypres in 1915 and Geller two years later. One interesting cohort of rugby players were men who were too old to go to the front and kept in reserve. The gorgeous wrecks, as they were dubbed in many, were guys in their late 40s and 50s. A volunteer unit from the IRFU led by Frank Browning. On Easter Monday, Browning and five others were killed and 15 injured in a gun battle on Haddington Road, not far from the present of Eva. Browning was a major recruiter for the British Army before 1916. He had played both rugby and cricket for Ireland. Another three Irish rugby players who made names for themselves before World War I were Vincent McNamara and Harry Jack, two Cork men. Along with Jasper Britt, they played in the infamous game remembered as the Battle of Balmoral, the old stadium in Belfast. Brett fought at Gallipoli in the horrors of Sulva Bay. Coincidentally, his friend McNamara was also at Gallipoli and died in a gas attack. Brett soldiered on, but the horrors he witnessed in the ill-fated battle for the British bore heavily on him, and he had a breakdown and was transferred home. A year later, he walked in front of a train at Dahi, while not killed in battle, was another victim of conflict. The IRAFU actively encouraged young players to sign up for the army to fight in an imperialist war. Large numbers never returned. Many were never found, buried in the muck at Ypres. It makes one wonder when people talk about conflict, godfathers and armchair generals. Is there some responsibility in organisations which encourage young men to sign up for war? Should these organisations such as the IRAFU, church and politicians take responsibility for their actions? Alfred Taylor, Wilford, William Edwards and Willie Beattie played against France in 1912. By the end of World War I, they and seven of the French players who played that day were killed in the war. Edwards was killed near Jerusalem in 1917. Taylor was a medic and killed at Ypres in 1917 as well. Beatty was wounded in 1918 near the end of the war, transferred to Belgium but contacted the Spanish flu, the pandemic, which killed more in 1919 than were actually killed in the war, and he died early that year. The three young Belfast rugby players had their careers cut short by war. There are just a few examples of sporting men who lost their lives in the horrendous conflict. They were all rugby players and it gives an insight into the foundations of the IRFU. And maybe if we think about it, we can better understand the refusal to play around Navian at Irish away games or the addition of Ireland's call for home games.
But while most who volunteered were from the rugby world and unionist circles, there were many from other sports who also lost their lives. Athlete Paddy Roach, golfer Michael Moran, cricketer Robert Gregory, son of Augusta, and friend of Yates, who wrote The Airman. Soccer player Dick Moore, who played for Linfield and whose family later had his famous sports store in Belfast, the athletic stores. Harold Sloan, who played for Bowes, and hockey players Faulkner Hewson and John Anderson. They and hundreds of other sportsmen died in that war to end wars. But a more interesting source of recruits has been discovered recently in the GEA. In 2014, a conference at Queen's hosted by the Ulster Council revealed plans to place on record GEA players who'd fought and died in World War I. Like the overall take on the war for Irish people, it was a hidden subject until the last 20 years when Mary McAleese opened up the subject following great work by Paddy Hart and Glenn Barr and the Peace School in Derry at the Round Tower at Ypres. As McAleese observed, any Irishman who came back from the war was on the wrong side of history and hid their medals in a shoebox under the bed for a hundred years. Similarly, for GEA players who fought in the war, you wouldn't be blown about it in an Ulster final at Clonus or a Munster final in Killarney. But many did join up. Mightn't have been for king and country, more for a month's wages and a pair of boots, but they also lost their lives. A few I've come across in research are Paddy Corey, a Tyrone player killed in 1915. Willie Mannon, who played for Antrim in the 1912 All-Ireland Final, was killed near the end of the war. And Wexford's Jimmy Rossiter played in the 1914 final. They They were probably an unusual breed, Gales who fought for the crown, but they were part of a cohort of great players from all sports who died during the conflict at Gallipoli, Verdun and the Somme. I visited the Somme in Ypres and went round the massive graveyards filled with little white headstones and the bodies of a generation of youth wasted in a war of imperialism. I've sat at Willie McBride's grave and John Condon's, the 14-year-old who gave a false age and died in a gas attack at Mousetrap Farm at Polkapel. It makes you think, did Willie Mannon think about playing at Croke Park as he lay slumped in a trench at the Somme, awaiting imminent death? So a hundred years after the end of hostilities, we're in a different world, hopefully, but armed struggle brought independence, partition and civil war. The British sports of cricket, hockey, golf and rugby were overshadowed by Gaelic games, which became the dominant sport in the Irish calendar. But gradually time has brought change and niceness embraced all these sports and many more. We are a sporting people and there's nothing better than seeing our teams or individuals achieving at the highest level in their chosen sport. Barry McGuigan at Loftus Road, Dennis Taylor at the Crucible, Katie Taylor at the Olympics, the soccer team at Italia 90, cricket and hockey teams at their World Cups, Harrington, McDowell, Clark and Rory winning majors in golf, Georgie Bess, Keno, and the rugby team's Grand Slams. All glorious moments and great players. Ronnie Delaney in Melbourne, Christie at Medina, Paul McGinley at the Belfry, Ray Houghton against England in 88, Down winning Sam in 1960, the first team to cross the border. But what makes us, what makes us fill with pride is the sound of around the vein ringing out as the tricolour flies proudly. This is what makes the rugger buggers decision to replace the national anthem controversial. 
I know it's in place a few years now, but to be honest, personally, it's like, listen to God save the Queen at Windsor Park, turn the sound down. Maybe we could have an alternative anthem for sport if it made people happy, but there are many more suitable ballads available. Danny Boy would be a most obvious choice, although listening to the response of the Irish fans in Tokyo, the song of famine round the fields of Athenry would appear the most popular, although it mightn't be received with plaudits at Ravenhill. Another alternative in the modern PC world would be to do away with anthems altogether. We could do away with all forms of nationalist feeling worldwide. No flags or anthems, we could all be vanilla. Get around the problem of Windsor Park anyway. Maybe in the new Ireland of the future we'll follow the South Africans after apartheid and create a new anthem conveying both traditions which exist on the island. And despite the joy we have had over the years with Willie John McBride, Mike Gibson and Jerry McLaughlin dragging six Englishmen over the line at the old Lansdowne, for the present, Ireland's call is not the answer. Coincidentally, I reach another milestone this week. I qualify for the bus pass. So soon I'll be taking CityLink to the Aviva, courtesy of Charlie Ahi's great treat for pensioners, to watch another Irish international side play for a place at the top table in Europe. They play in green, but with a different chip ball. Ironically, they technically represent a 26-county republic, but play and sing around the vein with passion and gusto. The IRFU, who represent a 32-county Ireland on the field, have a mismatch of anthems. It's strange. Anecdotally, my fellow golfers at Galway Bay and the Wednesday Seniors Group had a special welcome for me last week. Following on from the court case in London, the learned judges ruled in their infamous wisdom that Emma D'Souza and anyone born in the six counties were British which was totally against the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement. But while at a deliberate deletion of Paragat 4, subsection 3 of the historic agreement get in the way of a good story. So as I arrived at the clubhouse for our Wednesday morning golf, I was met with a chorus of, You're not Irish anymore. Only Irish citizens can be a member of the club. And finally, you're the first British citizen of the society, captain of the society. I must say the crack was mighty. With the jeers and cheers, it was like the House of Commons during the Brexit debates. Oh, da, oh, da.